I'm Chelsea Parker. I'm a freelance fiddle player, and this is The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show, my friend. I am very excited. I am very excited because today we get to talk with one of Nashville's finest. He is a musician. He has played with countless acts. However, he is most known for his time with the Oak Ridge Boys. Today, we get to talk with Scotty Simpson. We'll find out how he found his groove in Nashville, what it's like playing in one of the world's most popular bands, and we'll even take a deep dive into his solo release, The Spice of Life. So if you'd like to find out more about this episode, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Scotty, sir, how are you? Good evening, Jay, man. I'm so thrilled to be here, man. I really am. I am thrilled to have you, buddy. It's been a long time, and I have got a lot of ground I want to cover with you tonight. That's good, because these are questions that people just ordinarily don't ask. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> let's roll. <laughs> let's see what we can do tonight. All right. All right, buddy. Well, a lot to go over, a lot of things you've done in your career, a lot of um, places you've been and tours you've been on and so forth, but you had a chance to join up with the Oak Ridge Boys and head out on the road and spend some time with them. Let's start with what the career was like before that, and then let's just knock that out of the park. All right. Originally from Dallas, Texas, born in the mid-60s, and luckily I was born at the perfect time, if you were going to be a musician, for all of the inspiration you could ever need, because I started learning how to play at about 10 years old, I'd say. And if you think of that time, that would have been 1976, 77. And you got Van Halen, Boston, Foreigner. You could say Boston again. Hey, now. <laughs> you have all of those, the classic rock acts that everybody is still stuck on came out right in my formative years. So, of course, I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. Obviously, that, that didn't work out. <laughs> Probably for the better at this point. Absolutely. But the thing that saved me is just a year or two later, Urban Cowboy came out. John Travolta. John Travolta. And that took country music from being, you know, the stereotypical, what most people would think of it, the hay bales and straw and all of that kind of stuff to actually be in mainstream. And at that time, country was as popular or more popular than a lot of the rock stuff. So I got sucked into that. I uh, started off playing guitar, actually, which is very beneficial. If you're going to be a bass player, you need to know a little bit about guitar to understand what's going on. And so um, played guitar a little bit. Luckily, I have a brother named Steve that's 10 years older than me that also played guitar, and everybody wants to be like their big brother. So there I was trying to uh, measure up. So about the time that I hit high school, me and my brother put a band together. In probably ninth grade, I started actually playing clubs on the weekends with my brother because my parents were <laughs> nice enough to trust him with me, which they probably shouldn't have at the time, but they did. So I went into the full 
urban cowboy mode and jumped all over that stuff. Basically, just went from playing in a VFW weekend band to eventually working my way into a really good band in Dallas, probably the best band in Dallas at the time. And it was a complete fluke how I got there. And after getting there, it was like the first validation to say, well, you can really do this. You know, you actually have a chance of doing this. And so I took it and ran with it. I, I played the clubs down there in Texas and the, the Texas, Oklahoma adjacent state circuit for years and years and years and years. And then finally, about mid 90s, got the courage up to bring it to Nashville and see what could happen. But in retrospect, I really should have gone probably 10 years before I did. But I had, just like most musicians, you have that insecurity, you know, that crippling self-doubt. And you say, wow, the best players in the world are in Nashville. And yeah, they are. But guess what? So are the worst players in the world, <laughs> you know, because everybody comes here. Right. So don't just think coming here that you're going up against the guys that you hear on the records and the guys that you see on tour and all that. There's a whole whole pecking order, top to bottom. There's so many players here and there's great, there's mediocre and there's not so great. So I should have came to town early on, gotten the mix and found my place in it and then started to move up. That's what I should have done. I waited a long time to do that. And I got here and figured out I worked so hard in Texas trying to become a great player that I, I got to Nashville still thinking that I sucked. <laughs> That's what everybody's like. Absolutely. And you come to find out you're better than the majority, you know? And I think that would be true for anybody that's really serious about it and studying and really got the drive in them not to be famous, not to be rich, but to be a good player. That's really what it is. Cause I mean, if you come here to join a band to be famous and rich, then uh, you're not going to make it. So I came up here. My dream was to be a session player. I wanted to come up here and play on those records. And getting up here, I just kind of got sidetracked on the uh, touring stuff because I love live music so much. I love performing and singing and playing. And at the time, that was the easiest route to get going, was going and playing the clubs downtown until somebody hears you or you make the right connection. And then the next thing you know, there you are getting a chance at least to uh, make it with a, a real artist. Not that the ones before weren't real artists, but I mean an established artist. And then once you get one under your belt, the rest of them come a little easier, provided you do an excellent job for that first one. If you don't, you can learn and correct your mistakes, but the bad news travels faster than the good a lot of times. Absolutely. You have to approach every single situation in this town like it's the one that's going to break you. Because uh, there's music going on downtown in Nashville. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning. At 10 o'clock in the morning, there's probably 150 guys all around that little area already playing. And you uh, find your place in there. You go in and listen to those guys. On the breaks, you go up and talk to them. It takes a while to make those connections. And if you're a good player and most importantly, a good hang and a good person, then uh, 
people will help you. A guy that's a mediocre player with a great attitude will do as well as as a phenomenal player that uh, has some issues. Don't think that uh, you don't measure up. No, and it's like you said, too. It's it's like a pyramid. So, yes, Nashville has the cream of the crop at the top of that pyramid, but then they have everybody else that's trying to make it to the top of that pyramid. So in your case, you come to Nashville already doing fairly well in the music scene in Texas and Oklahoma, and then when you come to Nashville, you're pretty high up on that pyramid already, and you don't realize it. You think you're starting at the bottom and having to climb your way up, but you're already up there. And like you mentioned, once you do a gig or two and you develop that reputation, that gets your foot in the door and that's what you build on. And I always try to tell students and and people that you have to pick the direction you want to go in. So in your case, you were talking about wanting to either do studio work or do live work. Most people don't get the ability to do both. Absolutely. Once you pick one, you get in with that group of people. And then Mm -hmm. you keep growing with that group of people and you never actually go back to that other group. Right. So did you find that with yourself? I did uh, to a fault a little bit. If I really had come to town and said, I'm going to be a studio player or nothing, then I would have never went anywhere. I may have ended up a studio player. And to this day, I still want to be a full-time studio player. But the playing live and the performing is a lot easier as far as getting in the door because there's people playing all over the place around here. And there's a million different jobs to play. And like I said, you go to a couple of these things, you go out and watch people play. And if you like what they do on the break, you go up and just say, Hey man, I really like what you do. Where else are you playing around town? And then the next time you see them, they may be standing in a group of four or five other players. So you get introduced in, and the longer you're kind of in in the peripheral of everybody, there's going to come a spot where somebody's going to go, hey, so-and-so didn't show up. We need somebody. Let's call that guy. He's in, he's a cool guy. You know, let's see what he can do. You got to be able to uh, deliver when it's time. I'm, I'm a firm believer in being extremely over-prepared for anything. When I got to Nashville, I was so insecure about everything that it didn't matter if it was playing a wedding reception with a bunch of guys that I didn't know. I would rehearse that stuff like I was getting a job with Michael Jackson or something. I would just practice and practice and practice and practice. So over time, that helps me eliminate that part of this insecurity because if I go into an audition or a situation, they may not like me personally. They may not like the look or the hang or whatever, but there is no way they can say that I don't know the material. That is for sure. There you go. No, and that's a great point. I think that's what we all need to do across any profession. If we go in prepared, there's no need to feel like an imposter. You go in prepared and educated and you're ready to go. Actually, I would say over-prepared. There you go. To me, you know, if... uh If somebody gives me, say, if I'm playing a showcase or something, and it doesn't matter if it pays $100 or it pays $1,000, I treat it the same. And if it takes 20 hours for me to memorize that stuff and be able to play it fluently to where I don't even have to think about it, then I'll put 20 hours into it. Because at the end of the day, 
you never know who you're on stage with. You never know who's sitting right. Maybe, maybe some big dog or some player is uh, having a lunch with their girlfriend in the audience there or something. And you just never know the one situation where it's going to come and somebody's going to say, Hey man, I really like what you did. That kind of validation really keeps you going. So I'm a firm believer in uh, thinking you suck, but alleviating <laughs> alleviating every bit of that doubt that you have by just being way overprepared. And you go in there and you kill it, and they don't know whether you spent an hour on it. You know, you can you can even say, "Hey, I spent a few hours on it," and then you go in there and play it like you wrote it. They don't know the difference. All they know is that you're great at it. So. Yeah. That's funny. Again, I, I try to tell students that and try to tell the people that we work with, it's just going in. You don't know who's going to be in that room. And I remember I went to a, a party at Sony Records that they were throwing and sitting next to me was Travis Tripp. At the time, I didn't know it was Travis Tripp. And I talked to him for quite a while and we got along and we sat there and drank a beer together and all that stuff. But I didn't really know who he was. And then I was working a session. It was at Emerald Studios in Nashville. And I went in and I was setting up the gig. And I saw the name of the artist was Travis Tritt. So here comes Travis Tritt. And he walked in. I recognized him. And he instantly, I mean, this is years later, instantly just looked at me and said, oh, hey, Jay, how you doing? Didn't know you were going to be working on this gig. Exactly. And I mean, that's just how Nashville is. You just don't know. It really, truly is. You just never, ever know. And... Even more so than the artists you run across are the people that can really make a difference. You know, the uh, management, the uh, music directors, the other players and all of that stuff. You just never have any idea. Not only going to a gig, you don't know if somebody that you're playing with can do something for you or somebody that they know. They may say, man, I did a gig with this guy and he was great. And they may be friends with who knows? You know, the music director for Garth Brooks, you never know. You can jump a lot of that middle ground just by being a good hang and a good person and treating everybody that you meet like they're the ones that's going to break you, like they're the ones that, that are going to give you that opportunity. I never took it for granted once I got up here. Like I say, I was painfully insecure about stuff and for no good reason, apparently, because I've I've done well at it my whole life, but I've always... I always compare up. Sure. I never look behind me or, boy, I'm no Michael Rhodes, you know? Well, how long did it take for you to get over that? Or have you? Even to this day, there's still a little bit of that in there, especially on that wanting to be a session player side. But as far as knowing that I'm good at what I do, that probably disappeared around 2000 as when I started really starting to feel comfortable and feeling like I was a part of it and that I could go from camp to camp and do excellent work, or at least to the best of my abilities, anywhere I went, that confidence helps you as well. Yeah. It's being overprepared. Exactly. Now I mentioned Travis real quick. I know you got to spend some time with Travis. Can you tell me what that was like? Absolutely. I, uh, my friend Herb, that is a drummer that he plays for Randy Travis or did up until Randy retired. He's played for, you name it, Tracy Lawrence, just countless. He's one of those guys that goes from 
camp to camp and knows everybody everywhere. Referred me to the Pam Tillis camp. I went in and auditioned. I didn't know how I did. Sang a little bit, played a little bit, learned what they told me to learn, and got the gig, remarkably. And that was a really great stepping stone and a really great confidence booster because I spent probably about a year and a half with her. And once you get it under your skin for about a year and a half, you know, you you think, okay, I can do this. There came a time where she decided that she wanted to let the entire band go. So, of course, I'm right back to Insecureville. <laughs> I think, well, that's it. I might as well pack up and go back to Texas. Good thing you didn't. But kind of went back and played in the clubs a little bit. But after about six months, the same drummer, Herb, said, you know, I, I think that Travis is looking for a player. This was uh, late 99, right before 2000. He says, I think he's looking for a bass player, man. And while I was with Pam, we did a show or two with Travis, and I had chatted with his manager, a guy named Gary Falcon. And I had chatted with him, really not enough for him to even remember my name whatsoever. Might have remembered my face, but not my name. So when I heard about this Travis thing, I called the management company, and I say, uh, Hi, Gary, this is uh, Scotty Simpson, man. I played with Pam Tillis. We had a big chat one night, and of course he didn't know who I was for anything, but he goes, Oh yeah. 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 I remember. <laughs> I remember, man, that was a great con you know, the typical manager thing where they make everybody feel good. So they're like, yes, I remember you were great and all that. And I said, man, I hear you're looking for a bass player. And he said, yes, we are. And I said, I would love to audition for you. And he said, I'll tell you what, let me give you this guy's number. You call him and tell him to put you on the list. And I said, okay. So I called this guy and uh, I said, hey, I'm Scotty and uh, Gary, the management, told me to call you and have you put me on the list. Well, little did I know that he was a prospective bass player that was trying to get the job. Travis was kind of regrouping a band. So he found some friends that he knew and said, help me put the band together. So he found a bass player guy and he says, I want you to set up a few people to audition. Well, this guy was kind of stacking the deck for himself. He had arranged all of the other people that were going to audition. Well, here I come from management side. They put me on the list. I think he was a little reluctant to. So I knew I already had a strike against me when I went in. So in a situation like that for an audition, they give you probably four or five songs to learn. And I mean, if you, if you can't go in and play four or five songs perfectly, then you really don't have any business being there. But what I did for my favorite, first of all, you go in, you're in the hallway with about six, seven other guys. They're all there with their gig bags and their notebook, you know, of their charts. And so you stand in the hallway and you listen to everybody else audition. Basically you're listening one after another, one after another. So when I went in, I'd already from my insecurity, I had already memorized those songs. I mean, I knew them better than they did, basically. Inside and out. I went in and I killed those four songs. And he's, man, that was great. And I said, you know, I said, I've, I've played a bunch of your other stuff in the clubs over the years. We can do some other, some more of your songs if you want to. And that perked his ears. He liked that. So we ended up playing about four or five of his other songs just because I 
shoot, they were number one songs. They were top 10. So if you're in a country band, you already know them. You're already playing them. But come to find out, that was the deciding factor, that extra step. Plus, I didn't go in there with charts because everybody before that went in there. And when it was time to play, they buried their face in their chart. No personality. And then the song was over with me. I went in there and I looked at everybody, all the band members in the eye. And I said, man, let's play. Let's do it. That played to my benefit. And that was uh, the first experience where I figured out kind of how to work an audition to get that gig. Since then, I've expanded on that where it's I don't go in and play three or four or five of their songs. I'll play the three or four or five that they want me to play. And I tell them when they approach me about it, I say, send me a set list just so I'll know what kind of stuff y'all basically do. So they send me that set list. Well, I get on YouTube and I make a song list of all of those songs live that I can find. And so when I go in, I say, why don't we just play down the set list instead of playing three or four songs. I go, let's go down the set list. And especially if you're in there playing 12, 15 songs with no charts by memory, and you showed those people that you went in on your own, took the time to learn all that stuff, whether you got the gig or not, it makes a gigantic difference because they can see that you want it, even though you don't really want it more than anybody else that goes in there you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it to go that extra mile. And it makes a huge difference. No, I can imagine that. I mean, taking the time to learn all the material, going in there, not having charts, you're showing personality. I mean, all those things show you go up and beyond and you're a good fit. Not only that, but then you go in with the look and you go in like you're already a member of that band and you have a much better chance than others. One more thing to touch on Travis, because he was such a nice guy. I mean, even the day that I worked with him in the studio, he came in and he picked up a guitar and he was there long before anybody else. I mean, long before, hours before anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, why are you here so early? He goes, oh, I just got to write this song. Yeah, I said to him, exactly. I said, yeah. Write what song? He goes, oh, the one we're recording today. I'm like, you're going to write the song we're recording today right now? And he's yeah. like, yeah. So he did. And then the musicians came in, he played it for them. They charted it out on the spot handed it to me. We made copies. In one take, he was done with that song. He is a a master of that. He's a masterful writer, entertainer, singer. Oh my gosh, you can't get a better singer. I was so fortunate to get to sing with him so many years. I was with him for 12 years and singing behind him every night was heaven. I mean, absolute heaven. Well, he's been known to say that you are the only person who can sing a harmony the same way that he would have done it. That's because I loved it, man. I, I soaked it up. And and we did make a good singing combo eventually because part of that insecurity is me listening to his vocal. I'm absorbing his vocal and how he phrases and all that stuff. So before you know it, that intense kind of microscope on his voice transferred into the way I sing with him, where it, his phrasing, mannerisms, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, we were a pretty good team there for a lot of years. A lot of years. He's a great guy. Phenomenal artist. And he taught me a, a few really good nuggets of uh, of life. I guess you could use them in any field. The first one was don't ask, don't get. 
And what I mean by that is when I first started with him, he started us at a low pay rate to see if it's all going to work out. So we played at that rate for about a year, year and a half, two years, thinking, wow, we're doing such great work. Sooner or later, we're going to bound to get a raise. But what I didn't realize at the time is that your pay is so far off of his radar, being a big artist, management, records, all that. So many other things going on. Last thing he's thinking about is your pay. So I finally went to him and said, hey, man, you know, we've been here a long time. We've been doing some good work. I'd like to get try to get a raise for everybody because I was the uh, music director when I came in. He said, sure, sure, great idea. And I said, you know, we were just wanted to make sure we we're doing good work and everything. He said, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. So that was one that I've taken with me ever since. But the caveat of that is you have to be deserving of it before you even ask. So not only do you have to do your job, you have to go above and beyond your job. Right. Not just music. Show your worth. Yeah. And a lot of your worth will be in what you do on the road, what yeah. you do as far as making his life easy, you know, and I always assured him and I assure the Oaks and anybody that I work for, I said, not only am I working for my best interest, but I said, I am working for your best interest because making it easy on you makes it easy on me. Yeah. You have to do what you do on stage, but then you have to take that same work ethic and do it off stage as well. You do. And you have to realize, especially once you're recognizable and people know who you are and they know who you work for, that you're carrying that name with you everywhere you go. You can't go into a club and get drunk and start a fight or something. It wouldn't be Scotty started a fight. It would be Travis Tritt's bass player was in here. Right. Right. Exactly. And that stuff flows back. And really, it's good for your character anyway, you know, to maintain yourself as a professional everywhere in professional situations. <laughs> All right, buddy, let's do it. You mentioned the Oaks, the Oak Ridge Boys, another band that thinks so highly of you. I mean, they love you. My loves. <sighs> I love those guys. Oh, my gosh. Tell me how it started. Well, funny enough, when I left Travis in uh, 2012, Travis wanted to do some revamping of his band. And so I left that and I thought, well, Again, my insecurity kicked in. I thought, well, my playing career is over. I guess that's it. So I went out and got a day job. A friend of mine said, you know, the Oak Ridge boys are looking for a bass player. And the Oaks are legendary for being road dogs. Their ages span from 76 to 84. There's a 76, two 79s, and an 84. <laughs> and those guys, we're out. 225 230 days a year and i've been with them 11 years and right now my show count is somewhere in between 1700 and 1800 shows in 11 years so they're not joking around when uh when they say they work they work they do and Dwayne, the lead singer he said you know it is the music business He said, part of the business is working. He said, I'm in it to work. If you're in it to work, come on. And I am in it to work. So I've been there 11 years. It has by far been the greatest 
experience gig that I've ever been on. I've never been in a, a place like this where you are so, so much a part of a family, you know, before with Travis and Travis loved me and I love him. We're like brothers, but it was more like an artist, you know, artist band. There's like a little wall in between those two. Well, not with the Oaks. They are all intermingled in everything. And they are so friendly and kind and personable that uh, they always joke and say, you know, if I, if I told them I was having a barbecue on Saturday at my house, wherever, three out of the four would probably show up, which is pretty freaking amazing considering that they're Impressive. legendary, legendary guys. And my, uh, my favorite story of Dwayne, the lead singer is uh, probably two or three years ago. I had to have back surgery. I had to have some, uh, some disc put in my back from bass playing. Go figure <laughs> 40 something years of bass playing. It is a little heavy, right? Oh my gosh. Those are things that you're just going to deal with in the long run. So my surgery was at probably 11 in the morning. And so I'm, I went in to get surgery. Well, they accidentally nicked my spinal cord just a little bit. So there's like a, a fluid leak or something. So instead of being out and in recovery in an hour and a half, it took about six hours for me to come out of recovery. Well, little did I know that Dwayne, lead singer, legendary Oak Ridge Boys, had come to the hospital at 1030 that morning. And he sat there at the hospital until six o'clock that night when I finally came out of uh, recovery or at least to where people could see me. And he came in and he said, I love you. And I wanted my face to be the first face you see. That's awesome. Then he hauled ass. <laughs> then he got out of there quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't want to wait there all day, but that's just the kind of guy he is sure. as far as uh, integrity. He did what was right. And so that made a huge impression on me. Huge, huge impression. And I could not love these guys anymore. Well, that is one band that I've never had the chance to work with. I mean, I spent 30 years working in the music scene and it's just one of the bands that I never crossed paths with, so I really wish I did. But as far as their music, country and gospel, I mean, what makes them different than any other band in those genres? The fact that they can drift between them so uh, so effortlessly. I can't really think of any other big gospel act that jumped onto the country charts and had big hits, you know? The fact that they love both of those genres and they dedicate themselves completely to both. But really, they were the first truly gospel act. I mean, those guys have, it's funny, uh, Dwayne and William started in the, the Oaks band the year I was born. And I'm 57. <laughs> I mean, the year I was born is when that band. Right. There you Absolutely. go. Look at you. You did good. Only because I'm right there with you. Yeah, but uh, they slugged it out in that gospel. They come up from the old school gospel. I mean, two show days, three show days, traveling in a car, traveling in a whatever. It didn't matter to them. And they made it all the way up through the gospel thing and then were able to go into the country market and do just as well, if not better. Well, what kind of challenges does that make for you to switch genres like that? It was really pretty 
unusual for me because I'm a rocker. I love rock, you know, and I love country. But I had never, being in Texas, it's not a big Southern gospel, or at least I was never around it, I should say. It might be. Right. But I really had no idea of any of it. So I learned it on the fly with these guys. When I started, I uh, learned their songs. I kind of uh, had just been able to glean what I can through the years. And really, I have to say that when I was a younger player, I would have turned my nose up at a lot of different genres. But you really can't turn your nose up at them until you can play them effectively. Right. Until then, you really don't understand what's involved in it. And gospel is its own thing, man. And it, some of it is not easy. It's got its own feel. It has, definitely has its own feel to it, especially as a bass player. It's a, a little different, you know, a different uh, lope to it, different feel, different everything. But I have to say that since being with those guys and they are so beloved and so in the mix with all of those gospel things that I have run across every gospel artist ever now and have grown to love love the genre well with that much time in it what's your your favorite moment um my favorite moment wasn't even for me my favorite moment that i've been a part of with these guys was when they got inducted into the country music hall of fame in uh, 2015 and that's after you know uh elvira came out in 1981 so that's 40 years later and to see the looks on their faces and how it's funny. They are the most professional. You cannot rattle those guys on stage. Nothing can rattle those guys. But when they got up there to make their speeches and they were choking on their words and they were red in the face and you could tell how much it meant to them. I was so proud to be a part of it and to be a witness to it. I still, I'm a, I still get a little emotional about it. I can completely understand. I mean, yeah. And for them to treat you like family through that whole process and take you with them during those times is amazing. Absolutely, they are the best, and uh, they are old school, and they treat you like a family. This is the first artist gig I've ever been in to where if you're sick and you can't work. Not only do they pay the person that replaces you, they still pay you. When I had my back surgery, I was out for a month. I probably missed 10 or 12 shows that whole time. They not only paid the guy that was filling in for me, but they paid me. That's unheard right. of. And then that during that time, unheard you probably of. wonder if that person will take your gig and they, they hold that spot for you too. Absolutely. That was something that you would absolutely not have to worry about with these guys because they are loyal. I mean, completely loyal. I don't think you can get fired by the Oak Ridge Boys. Again, that's awesome. I really don't. Yeah. It really is. They're, they're like a family, you know, and you can't fire your crazy uncle. You can't fire your cousin that drinks too much <laughs> or whatever. You just can't do it. What was the largest venue you played? Uh, with Travis, the largest venue I played, we did a July 4th thing at the Capitol building in D.C. And there was probably about a quarter million people out on the property there, the lawn or whatever you want to call it. It was that typical uh, PBS 
you know, the things they have on Fourth of July where they have the Air Force band and then they have different artists and all that stuff. Well, we were doing that. And I mean, as far as you could see, it was people. So that was probably the largest. With the Oaks, we've done so many. I mean, uh, we may be an older act, you know, and in the twilight of our lives, but we end up on those big tickets out there with the CMA Fests and the the big uh, stadium arena stuff. Granted, we're playing during the day, probably, as a an earlier act, but that's actually fine by me. I prefer that. <laughs> That'll make that by a nice time, years. and life is good. I've seen some yeah. of these venues you play that are just beautiful. I mean, the outdoor venues, the Western rock walls and all that stuff is just beautiful. I think the one you're referring to is, uh, I think it's in Utah. I cannot remember the name of it, but it is like a mini yeah. Red Rocks. I'm sure y'all are all familiar with Red Rocks in, in Colorado that is just basically chiseled into the mountain, you know, and it is literally Red Rocks. Even in the dressing room in the back, half of the wall is not there because there is a stone that takes up that whole wall and they just kind of sheetrock around it to make, you know, the thing. But uh, it's similar to that. But the one in Utah was a lot smaller, but it was kind of prettier in a way because it was in just a different, a different view. It really was. Does it give you any challenges with the reflections or anything like that? Uh, not, not as much now that we're on ears. I'm sure it probably gives the, uh, front audio guys problems, you know, but the in-ears thing, not really, but you spend that whole show ordinarily where you're kind of looking at the crowd and stuff. Half of us spent the whole show looking at the stars and looking at the moon over the mountain. And, uh, you know, you're just, it's breathtaking. <laughs> it is. You know? It really is. It really is. You mentioned in-ear monitors. So let's talk about that for a quick second. You got gear that has changed over time. Is there any one piece of gear or anything that has changed that you just really embrace and love? Well, as you can see behind me here, see all of these cabinets I do. that are behind me? Those are relics of the past. Uh, when I was out on the Travis tour and earlier tours, that's basically like a rock tour. We all had big amps and we just blasted, you know, all the time. We had in-ears. Luckily. Yeah, well, at that time I sang with the... Travis on every single song and I preferred to have one ear in and have wedges. So I would have an ear in this side, the drummer side, and then two wedges in front. So that kind of gave you enough ambience to have a big amp and everything. Well, now I run completely direct. Oh, really? You know, I just have a rack and I run two lines. I run uh, a straight DI line that has nothing on it. It's just like plugging the guitar straight into it. And then the next line I have is a uh, a preamp and a compressor that I drastically change the EQ of from the DI because I want two drastically different sounding signals. One that's really aggressive and bitey and growly. Almost if you had it by itself, you wouldn't like it. But you blend that with the other one. And I can do that in my ears, but not only can I do it, front house guy, on a day when you're in a small venue, he can turn up that low end side, that DI side. If you're in a, an, an arena where everything's just washing around, he can turn up that really aggressive bitey side and it'll give you a little definition. 
But the the biggest change has been the advent of uh, losing all of this, where they're not necessary anymore, especially with modeling, amp modeling. All right. I want to take a deeper dive into what is your record, sir? Uh, Spice of life, buddy. Yeah, man. I want to know how you even thought of it, the whole concept behind it, before we get into the mechanics of it. I tell you what, it it actually started probably um, 20, 25 years ago. I've always, you get up here to Nashville, and Nashville has the best songwriters in the world. Absolutely. Hands down. Absolutely. And uh, playing with all of these artists and all of these super phenomenal songs, you really just get sucked into the to that songwriting end of it. And I thought, again, with the the painful insecurity, I thought nothing I could ever write would be anything these guys do. But over those 25 years, if I got an idea, I would jot a little bit down and put it away. And it may be six months later. It may be the next day. It may be a year later. I look at it again. And if I have a little bit more for it, then I add a little bit more to it. And I just had a lot of ideas over those years that some of those songs took 10 years to write the lyrics because I was so insecure about it. And I had so much that I wanted to say that I just agonized over every single word, every and, every the, every this. And so I finally got them to where the songs would read as lyrics. No music to them whatsoever, but they would read in a cadence, like a poem, verse, chorus, whatever, and you could read it in a rhythm, so you knew it was a song. And then, oddly enough, I turned 50, and I said, I'm not going to cuss on your show, but <laughs> I said, I am so tired of being a chicken about this, about putting my thoughts on recording them, you know, because how vulnerable can you be than to come up with something? It's like reading your poem in front of the classroom. It's uh, agonizing as to how it's going to be judged. Right. You're no longer the guy playing the music. You're now the guy up front. Right. Well, just uh, just putting your, your deepest thoughts and your singing. I, I love being a harmony singer, but I do not like singing lead. I've never wanted to be up there in the front doing what they do. It's just not me. I'm not a uh, showboaty, egotistical, look at me type guy. I'd rather, I would be happy sitting in the orchestra pit playing, actually. <laughs> you know, I just want the music to be good. But I finally just shamed myself at, at the age of 50. I said, are you ever going to do this? Are you ever going to at least do it? And I finally after worrying about it and worrying about it, I got to the point where I said, I'm just going to make myself happy. I'm going to write them the way I want to write them, sing them the way I want to sing them. And if nobody buys them, fine. If everybody buys it, fine. It really was more an exercise in me getting over my insecurity about it. And I could not be any more proud of the lyrics on there, the singing. Like I said, being a lead singer, there's a bunch of stuff I could go back and redo or do better. But I love the harmony singing. I did great on that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I finally just, like I said, 
said, okay, this is it, dude. You're either going to do it or not. And uh, the reception was way better than I expected. No, dude. I mean, people love it. I mean, they really do. Before we get down that far, though, who produced it? I co-produced it with a guy named Mark Caps. He's probably won four or five Grammys on his own as an engineer. He grew up working at a place called The Sound Shop in Nashville. It's right on Demumbrian, right? It was, yeah. It's, it was. it's been gone a long, long time. But he was the engineer there while all of those great 90s records were being made. Joe Diffie and, uh, oh. I mean, just every day, star after star after star after star after star. And he was engineering a, an, a session that I was lucky enough to get on to. And I just felt the kindness out of him so much, you know, just speaking with him a few minutes, you could just tell he's a, he's a guy that really cares. And I said, man, I have been trying to do a record for 50 years now and I need somebody that'll help me out. I said, I don't have hardly any money, but I, uh, it's in my heart that I want to do this to prove to myself that I can. And he said, I'll help you. And he did. So I went out and I spent all of my money hiring the A session players, all of those guys that I want to play with eventually. That's what I was just going to ask you. I mean, did, yeah. you, did you select the musicians or did he? I did. I did. Awesome. I, I, uh, I said, if I'm going to do this and spend this kind of money, then I'm going to use it as an opportunity to, to kind of buy my way in to some of these guys' lives. Some of them, one or two of them were my really close friends. A guy named Jeff King, who is probably one of the best guitar players in Nashville by I'm far. I'm only laughing. He was supposed to be on the show last week. Was and, he really? <laughs> he had a, an, a family emergency come up, so he's got to reschedule. But he was literally just supposed to be here last week. That's going to be a good show for you, man. He's awesome, he too. Is, he's amazing. He, he truly is the king. But he's another guy that has that good heart. He's at the top of the pile, but he could tell by the way I talked to him, you know, that it meant a lot to me. And so he helped me. He said, man, I'm not going to charge you anything at all for my stuff, for my parts. So go out and get the guys you want to get. This was and Jeff? So, Jeff, yes. He is such yeah. a nice guy. He's awesome. He said, I'm not going to charge you for that, man. You're my friend. Him and I played in a road band together in like 1980 six or seven way back when but even all this time later i could call on that favor and, and he stood up in a heartbeat and said absolutely i'll do it so i went and i got eddie bears you know Best King eddie bears, you know absolutely and uh and he started see, as a piano player yes yes and he also started as a right-handed drummer right he has no no he shouldn't be the best drummer in nashville I agree. Uh, the funny thing about him, the thing that makes him so phenomenal is that his whole life he played traditional and he was in a motorcycle wreck and broke his wrist to where he could no longer play like that. So he's like, okay, I'll just switch to like this. And so that's the way he plays now. He plays, I think they call it open grip. I think it's called open to where your left hand does the hi-hat and right hand does the snare, kind of like a Simon Phillips from uh, the who and all of that stuff. He was the first big dog that I wanted to have. I said, man, I've been waiting my whole life to play with you, buddy. And he's another guy. 
it's amazing how you found out the bigger they are, the kinder they are, you know? Oh, yeah. Dude, he's nice as can be. I didn't know him from Adam, and he still put his heart and soul into my stuff like it was Garth Brooks or something. Got him. I got uh, Michael Spriggs, probably one of the best acoustic. What would you call him? A utility guy? Utility, yeah. Acoustic. All of those Celtic instruments. instruments. Yeah. Strange tunings. Bazookies. Got him. Uh, uh, Jimmy Nichols, a really uh, top dog session keyboard player. And I went out and just told these guys, hey, I'm doing this. And once you say, well, Jeff's playing on it and Eddie's playing on it, then sure. Why not? You know, so I spent all of my money on those guys. And I'm so glad I did. And uh, the other half of the album, I had my road road brother, David Northrup, that I played in Travis Tritt's band with forever. And I actually brought him over to the Oak Ridge Boys for three or four years. And we just put so much time in together. I had him play on half of it as my brother, you know? Did you have a, a road guy play on an album? What are you thinking? <laughs> He's a master of... Uh, self-promotion and being able to market himself. He's, he does as many sessions as he does road stuff. That's like Jeff King. Yes. I think, uh, I think David's with Joe Nichols right now, but yeah, he played on half of it. The rest of it were those same, same guys. I had Jonathan Yudkin, who is a phenomenal, uh, string arranger, composer, player, Fiddler, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> I think he would be insulted by right. that, but he's a violinist, is, is basically is what he is. Sure. And uh, he was in on it too. And it was like heaven to be sitting in that studio and playing my songs that I knew very well, by the way. <laughs> I was I was overprepared for that too. <laughs> 50 years of practice. Yeah, and to look across and see the heavyweights in the business playing on your stuff and asking you questions and being enthusiastic about your music and actually liking it, you know, it was incredible, a very uh, humbling and uh, a high point. I mean, that's awesome. Those guys are absolutely amazing. They are killer musicians in yeah. every one of them. I mean, I, I was in a session the day that Eddie bears was awarded drummer of the year. And we just made a, big thing out of it just busted his cookies oh, the bet. whole day I bet. and he just went along with it like it was nothing he was amazing yeah. great guy jeff king the best i mean he's fabulous right yeah he's intimidating too i mean he walks into a room he's just like he, he's got you can a presence just feel it. you can just feel it on him man and uh, the sweetest most uh genteel country gentleman guy but boy when it's time to cut heads on guitar he can take your face right off you oh, know yeah. nobody better he can go as country as you want to go. But kind of a funny thing about that record is I spent all of that money getting those guys and getting Mark and getting the studio and the assistant engineers and all of that stuff. Well, when it was time to sing, I was out of money. I didn't have any money. And so I went and I got Mark and the studio to cut me a deal and I went in and sang two songs in the studio uh, with Mark producing them in the studio. And that's all I could afford. Couldn't afford anymore. 
Mark said, I'm willing to keep going, you know, but the studio, I didn't know them that well. They're not going right. to offer up time. So we took and got insulation foam and foamed out the closet of my bedroom, my little six by six closet. We did the walls. We did the ceiling. We did everything. And I got in there with my laptop and I sang it all in my closet. Every bit of it, except for two songs, was done in my closet. Turned your entire closet into a vocal booth and boom. Yeah, and I really didn't know much about recording at all and still don't. Obviously, you help me with every technical thing that comes up that uh, I just did it all and I gave it to Mark and I said, here it is, man. Good luck. So did he mix it then? (laughs) He mixed it and he went through and... Uh, made sense of all of my little, I mean, cause I was down to, you know, punching in one word here, one <laughs> word there and everything. So it was a, it was a patchwork of stuff and he made sense out of all of it. He mixed it. And I had a, a friend of mine that produces Marty Stewart mastered it for me. And I put it out and the Oaks were kind enough to say, why don't you sell that at the merch table out there? And Buddy, that was the green light. I would have never made my money back if they hadn't offered me that. But I was lucky enough to make my money back on it, plus a little, and almost enough to be courageous enough to do another one. But not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when that time comes, buddy, I don't want you to forget, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I know. I know you know your stuff. (laughs) You spent a lot of time trying to make sense out of some of my bass stuff whenever you were editing Travis videos. Dude, that was awesome. I mean, first of all, I mean, just being part of that project is awesome. But yes, I mean, I've had a chance to work with Travis on a number of occasions now. What was the name of that producer? I forgot his name. Uh, Billy Joe Walker did That's those. That's the one, yep. Yeah, incredible. He he was awesome. Talk about a guitar playing fool, man. There's nobody better on acoustic. No, and he had his own studio at his house. Yes. I mean, and when I say studio at your house, I'm not talking a room like this. I mean, I'm talking, he had a, a building at his house. Yeah, he had a studio. Right. I mean. Yeah, he had a building. Absolutely. He had a, you know, like living room style room with TVs and all that stuff. But then right. he had the studio yeah. and the, the control room. And we would go in there and we'd watch the live performance and we'd make the edits and we'd watch the live performance. And we, I mean, it was awesome. Just the things that we were yeah. part of at that time. And, and it's it's funny that y'all made such a good product out of it because that shoot was really a fiasco from beginning to end. That whole, I think it's a, a DVD called Live and Kicking, maybe. Dude, if I you didn't mention that tonight, I didn't even remember that. Had, mm-hmm. Didn't remember it till this very second, and now I remember it entirely. Right. That was with Bob Bullock being one of the producers on that. And yes. I worked for Bob Bullock for three and a half years. I mean, that guy is absolutely amazing. Absolutely. The the fiasco was on our end as far as they got us there and, and there's this huge set on stage. You know, we're used to being all kind of bunched together. Well, Travis was in the middle and then shoot, I was 30 yards away up on a riser 20 feet <laughs> in the air and the drummer's way over there and we were just all spread out and we were nervous about it. And Travis had a uh, sinus infection going on. So he was nervous about it too a little bit you can tell when it was bothering him 
just several technical things on site that day to where just made it tough. Anybody that's involved in video knows that it's a nightmare a lot of times to where the artist or the performers spend a, a whole lot of time standing around waiting for them to figure out some kind of a technical something or other. And another good Travisism as <laughs> his his motto for video shoots was use me or lose me. So if he showed up at 10 o'clock, that means that the camera needs to be rolling at 10.02. It's funny. He, he has a video that's called 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And so he was doing this. This was before I was in the band. You can go back and watch it. So the beginning of the video, they're in a bar, they're in this, they're getting out of cars, they're walking around town, they're doing this and that. And then all of a sudden, about three quarters of the way through the video, he's just on a roof all by himself. He's just kind of dancing and singing. Well, that came after he got to the point of being so frustrated, waiting on these people to set up their video shots yeah, he that he good. finally basically said, use me or lose me. He says, you've got till 11 o'clock. <laughs> well, at 1030, they decided they were going to go to the roof and run some uh, black tarp on the roof one light up there and he's going to dance around and sing. And if you look in the video, that's what it is. <laughs> you know? All right. Hey, we got a, a question coming in here. Karen would like to hear more about your songs and, and you personally, the heart that you put into your songs. Can you share that? I really did put my heart and soul into those songs. They mean so much to me. And the funny thing is that after putting them out there and other people hear them, I'll hear back. And they mean different things to them that I never even thought about when I was writing them. A lot of them that took me so long to write, I wrote them over 10 years, 15 years, piece by piece. The idea that I started with in the beginning, if I came back to it four years later, then the rest of the song would go in a different direction because I had a, a different life experience since then. It may have started out in one direction about something specific over the years, it just morphed into something different. And at the end of it, I, I got it to where I would pull them out. And even after they were, all the lyrics were finished, there was probably a year where I would just pull them out and read them and go, I don't think I'd change any of those words. So I was really proud of the words and the strangest things. I had pushed myself to do this thing, especially before my mom passed away because she's, she was elderly. And I said, I want to get this done before then, just because there's a song on there about her. She wasn't passed away at the time. She just passed away a few months ago. But at the time, she wasn't. And there was a particular song that I wrote on there that I wanted her to hear before anything happened. That's a tough time. It really is. So, And this was at 50. This was seven years ago because uh, I didn't know how long she would last. So I, uh, I finally got the courage to say, I'm going to do it in three months or whatever, whatever date I set. And on Mother's Day weekend, I was sitting and reading through those lyrics. And all of a sudden, I just started getting kind of music ideas behind them. I, I had like a chorus of this or that before where I kind of knew how I wanted the chords to go. Well, I sat down, hit my phone on record and I wrote all the music to all of them over about a 
25 hour period. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I sat there and they just poured out of me. And the strangest thing is it was on Mother's Day. And I didn't even realize it until I finished that day. And actually, she called me. She said, uh, you know, it's Mother's Day. And I said, I've been up since yesterday doing all this and that, you know, and all of this and that. that. So I, I felt guilty about it. But somehow I can't help but think that maybe the intention that I went into it with was uh, heard by the universe. And it, it just gave it all to me at one time and on such a significant day that they were ready. And I had the music. I had the words. Then it was just getting the courage up to actually set the time, you know, to make it happen. So glad I did. No, dude, that's tough. I know both my parents have passed away, and I wrote a song for my mother and got to play it for her before she passed, but I wrote the song for my father after he passed, and either way, it's tough. I mean, it's not, it's not a good time. I mean, people seem to really love the song about your mother as well, too. Well, it... It was definitely heartfelt. And I, I mean, in the song, she's, she dies. But I wanted her to know the ripple after she dies, the ripple of everything. You know, it, uh, I just wanted her to know what she meant to everybody sure. before she goes. Of course, at the, at the same time, I think she might have had a little bit of, I'm dying. You know, I'm dying in the song type thing. But luckily... It was another five years after I made that record. She just died, like I say, maybe four or five months ago. At the age of almost 98, she was squeaking right up to 98. No, I mean, I was talking to my daughter, I think it was yesterday, we were driving in the car, and she was asking me why people release two versions of the same song, you know, one on one album and then release it again on another album. And I didn't really have the best reasoning behind it other than things change and sometimes you re-record something or you change change it a little bit. But I was telling her how the song I wrote for my dad on the first recording, it was long before cell phones and social media, so there was no recordings of my dad, but he had left a, a message on our answering machine and it said, you know, miss you, love you, that type of thing. And I was able to clip that and run it into the studio and put it at the end of the song. And Absolutely, buddy. on the awesome. song that was released, uh, that was not on the song. Right. Of course, yeah. So there's th reasons like that when you kind of yeah. release a song for a second time. That's like a little record candy right. or a little extra for somebody that actually takes the time to get the hard copy of it or download it or whatever. They get a little extra meaning out of it. And And to that point, to this day, my mom's, she was pretty frail health for several years before she died the last four or five or whatever i saved every single message every time i missed her call and she left a message i never deleted it so i've got probably 150 of them in my phone that I can, awesome. some of them that i never even listened to because you know when you get a message and you just go ahead and call back rather than listen to the message you just call back right away so there are dozens of them I've never even listened to. And there may come a time where I go and click on a few of those to see see what's in there. No, I mean, they would tear me up doing that. It'd be tough. But the thing about her and her passing is that I always say, not only did she get quality of life, she also got quantity. 
I mean, what else could you ask for than to have a great life all the way up to 98? You know, that's, uh, that's all anybody can ask for. Yeah. My wife's grandfather just passed and he was in his late nineties as well. And, you know, it, it was still tough, but just the life he lived and he was a, a great man. It was, it was a hard time though. Still very hard. Yeah. And, uh, for her, she was in such bad physical shape. I mean, don't mean like diseases or anything, but just physically, she was all bent over in a, a walker and it's, we told her we will never put you in a home as long as you can pick yourself up off the couch to go to the kitchen or to go to the bathroom or to that kind of thing. We said the day that you can't physically lift yourself off of that couch, then uh, a home may be coming. And I'll be damned if to the last day. That was her inspiration. It would take her 10 minutes yeah. to get off that couch. She would climb up on her walker, basically. I think it was a relief for us and her when she finally did go because, I mean, there was just nothing left to work with. And we weren't going to put her in a home for the last two weeks of her life or, you know, or, or whatever. So mm -hmm. she went at home with us there. Actually a wonderful, peaceful moment. Oh, it's tough. I mean, yeah, I'm glad you had that opportunity. Me too, buddy. Me yeah. too. I'm definitely glad for you. Um, Lighter side, Lindsay would like to see another album, please. I am very tempted to do another album. The only reason that I haven't so far, and this is so bad to say, is that it costs a lot to do it. I mean, it's not cheap. And I'm willing to put the money into it if I know that I have a, a fairly good chance of making my money back. And right now, the Oaks are getting so far on into their career. I mean, they're in the twilight of their their career. It's not any big secret. And I'm afraid that I would invest all of that money in it and then it'd be over. And then if you're planning on selling it on Spotify and Apple Music and all that stuff, you're you're not going to make a penny, not yeah. a single penny. 0. 0.007 cents per thousand downloads. It was really sad. I mean, the entirety of the time I was selling my CD, I think I got one that's accumulative, not just Apple Music, but it's Apple Music and Spotify and every streaming service that it's on. And that check was about 40 bucks, maybe, total. I take that back. It was about 23 bucks. And I, that's the what I would make basically on one CD at the table out there. So... I'm weighing that against spending all the money to make it, which I will because I have a lot more songs to do. I just have to have enough uh, funds to where I don't care whether I make anything on it or not. Understood there. As long as people want to listen, I'll I'll do another one. I will tell you right here on the air, sir, I will donate my time for free. God bless you, man, because you are a technical genius. <laughs> tell my wife, please. You won't even trust me with a remote. <laughs> well... Remotes are different because I can run a remote. <laughs> I got go. the remote end of it. You got the other end. <laughs> All right, sir. I've got another thing I'd like to just ask you about real quick. We do a segment called Unsung Heroes. What we're trying to do is shine a spotlight on somebody behind the scenes, behind the curtain, somebody that's not on the stage that you think deserves some recognition. So is there anybody that you'd like to take a second, think about, and maybe shine the spotlight on somebody? Not so much behind the scenes, but 
really the people that I am most inspired by at this time in my life are the boys, the Oak Ridge boys, those four guys. Wow. Not because of what they do on stage, but what they do off stage. I've been with them. Uh, I always say, man, I've learned to be a man f- from the boys because when you're out there knocking out 200 dates a year or 220 something days on the road, they're right in there slogging it with you. I've never heard them complain. I've never heard them be rude to anybody. I've never heard them cut somebody short that was telling them a story. There'll be times on the road, say, uh, we were out on a long, hard tour, several days. We're all completely exhausted. So everybody's grabbing everybody to sleep they can. I mean, if you can get it during the day, if you can get it in the hotel, on the bus, wherever, everybody's sleeping all they can. Well, George Bush Sr. dies. President George Bush Sr., I should say. Texas. Uh, he, yes, he dies. And the Oaks were really close friends with him. So they want them to sing at the funeral. And we're in either Washington or Oregon playing night after night after night after night. Okay, well, the day of the funeral, we play the night before. The boys get up at, good Lord, they probably got up at 2.30 or 3 in the morning because they were on Pacific time. They sent a jet for them. They got on that jet. They flew in that got their suits, flew all the way to Houston or wherever the funeral was, sat through all of the uh, pomp and circumstance of it, uh, sang their part, stayed there till the very end, shook every hand, hugged every neck, and then got on that jet, flew right back in time to have about two hours before we played that night. And we were exhausted. So I can, and those guys are all a minimum of. 20 years older than me and no complaints. If they're called on to do anything anywhere, that is the right thing to do. They're going to be there. They take an interest in their fans and their fans, families. They know their names. They know their stories. They, uh, it's just really unique. I've never been in a situation like this before. Well, you've hooked up with some amazing, amazing players and are amazing artists. I mean, I know the Oak Ridge boys have taken you in and made you part of their family. And yeah. speaking of family, sir, we have some complaints going on in the comments section here that I need to bring to your attention. Uh-oh, I can already tell. Which daughter? I knew it. <laughs> that is my oldest, Savannah. She's 27 and full of herself, as you can see. And I have a, another daughter named Stevie that is 18. And I love them both dearly. I'm very proud of them. And I've done my best to give them a decent life. Well, I can only imagine that they think you have, sir. Well, in the long run, on the average, yes, I've tried my best to give them a good life. Made some missteps. And I will admit that earlier in my life, especially with the older one, when I was with Travis and before that, I was a little more selfish than I should have been as far as coming home off the road on a Sunday morning and being completely dog ass tired and exhausted, I would come home and go to bed and sleep all day when I should have come home and stayed up all day. I regret those things, but that's hindsight. I wouldn't do that now, but at the time it made sense in retrospect, it was selfish, you know, and I I regret that. 
No, I I know you beat up yourself over that, and I completely understand. But I'm roughly your age, and I have three kids, which apparently my wife has made me add later in life. So I'm a father when I should be a grandfather. Yes. But I don't think I would have been as good of a father if it happened to me sooner. So Absolutely. I think it's what you know now that makes you the father that you are, and I think your kids can see that in you. Well, and actually, uh, I say that my kids saved my life because when I was playing in Texas in the best band in town, and I was in my early 20s and all the guys I were playing with were in their 30s and I was getting all of the attention, I fully dove headfirst into all of the sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, all of it. And it got the best of me. It got hold of me. And uh, the day... I got pretty bad into the drugs for a while. And the day that I found out that my oldest daughter was going to be born, it wasn't that day that I stopped, but that's the day that the seed was planted that you're going to have to stop and saw her face. I could never look in her face and not feel guilty about it. So I always credit her with saving my life. Cause if I would have kept on, on the route I was going, I don't know if I would have OD, but I might have gotten so depressed, you know, that who knows what would have happened. I no. certainly wouldn't be here. And I certainly wouldn't have done all of the good, fun, rewarding things I've done since would not have happened. If not for her, is what I would say. And then my second daughter, after I had grown up and become less selfish and all of that, I was a, a lot better dad to her, you know, or at least tried to be and continue to try to be. Well, I told my wife that I didn't want to get married and somehow by the age of 40, she convinced me that I needed to be married and I didn't want to have kids and she wanted one. So we settled on three. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, I think, just, I think it's good for men to get married later in life. We need somebody to take care of us. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if it wasn't for getting married, if it wasn't for having kids, my life would be completely different than it is now. And just like you mentioned, looking at my daughters is what keeps me grounded and what makes me wake up in the morning with the enthusiasm to tackle what I need to tackle. It's the best, man. It is the absolute best. Just the way they look at you. <laughs> she knew she was your favorite. There you go. Yeah, she she definitely plays that up. <laughs> and the only reason she's uh, winning in the favorite war right now is because my little one's not watching. <laughs> That's too funny. Unless, uh, unless Harry Styles was on here with me, she's not interested. Yeah, I get it. That's what my little one's like. I do too. You don't understand stuff about your parents until you are your parents, you know? <laughs> Scotty, sir, my friend, this has been a blast. I love talking okay. to you. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave us with? Man, I don't know. I'm just uh, so thankful, and I'm so glad to see you doing this. It's nice to have uh, an interviewer that really, since you're an inside guy, you know the deal. You know you know what to ask about. You know what to talk about, and you have a little insight on, on uh, what your audience wants to hear. And I hope that I've given a little bit of uh, advice or, or just, if nothing else, to show you that I'm no different than any other player that was sitting in their bedroom listening to records, trying to figure them out, you know, it's, it still continues. It's just on a different level. I see it still continues. I'm still that guy. 
What advice do you give to somebody who wants to be that next bass player or that next musician in Nashville? Uh, first of all, if you, if you really want to get in the business, you got to be here. You definitely have to be here. And once you get here, go out. Like we were saying earlier, there's music going on from 10 in the morning till two o'clock every night. Go out, hit all of those places on the breaks, introduce yourself to those musicians if they're knocking you out, you know? And the more you do that, the more you get in the loop, the next thing you know, you'll be on that playing one of those shifts. There are guys down there that make $100,000 a year playing those shifts. You know, they'll do two or three a day and they make a fantastic living. I'm just not willing to work that much. (laughs) (laughs) Not now. Not now. And back then I would have loved it, but now it's a, that's a young man's game. I couldn't stand up with a guitar on for that long. (laughs) Speaking of guitars, which one do you play these days? I play a Mike Lowell five string P bass. And uh, it's basically just a custom shop Fender P bass. Mike is a a builder out in Washington and he's just really specific about the details. And he was an an excellent guy. He just passed away recently and uh, a wonderful person and treated you like you were, you know, Michael Rhodes going to him for a bass. He would treat you that specially, you know, so that's what I'm playing. I had a, a bass designed by Michael Tobias, and I mean, it was a big deal. I play left-handed, so he made this bass for me, and it was the most beautiful piece of art that I didn't want to ding it. I didn't want to hurt it, mm-hmm. and it's it's a good thing anyways because I cannot play like you play, so that's why I belong behind the buttons instead of in front of me. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a place for everybody. Uh, my deficit is that. I was so insecure and it put so much time into the playing only that I have not kept up with the technical end of it. As far as how the stuff that everybody knows, people like yourself know just common knowledge is foreign to me because I always thought I'm the player. I sit in the studio, somebody else does all that stuff or, you know, and (laughs) I'm still hoping for that situation. (laughs) I'm the guy that does all the other stuff. I put, it's like you said, I spent so much time pushing buttons and focusing on learning the right software and the right piece of gear that until I was married and my wife says, you got to, you know, lift your head up and take in some other things. Right. Right. Well, you tell her I said that (laughs) you're just in love with what you do as I am. It's an art. It's an art. There's an aptitude for it. Definitely. Mine was just beaten into my head over 50 years. I just wasn't going to give up. And a big thanks to Scotty for joining us tonight. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here tonight. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode over jfranzi.com slash episode three. You can also find an uncut and uncensored copy of it over on our YouTube channel. We do stream live, so make sure you subscribe. Thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next show. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528.
407-421-5528.